Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard, inviting you again to search the Scriptures with me as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. There's a great interest today in the book of Revelation, which is the climax of the whole biblical drama which God has been working out from the beginning. We've been pointing out in this series of programs that Jesus was a Jew thoroughly committed to and rooted in the Hebrew Bible, that 77% of our Bible that we call the Old Testament, but which really we should recognize as the sacred Hebrew Scriptures. It's a colossal mistake of Bible study to ignore the Old Testament. If you ignore, for instance, the definition of the kingdom of God found in the book of Daniel and in the prophets of Israel, you are likely to misunderstand Jesus' own gospel of the kingdom. It's entirely insufficient to quote isolated verses from the epistles of Paul as though they will provide you with a correct definition of the kingdom. Some, for instance, know the verse in Romans where Paul said that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a very atypical statement about the kingdom from Paul. In other passages, Paul spoke of the kingdom as the future inheritance of Christians something we do not have now, positively not just a feeling of joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, it's fine to have joy in the Holy Spirit, and of course that's part of the Christian message, but the kingdom of God is something concrete, external, territorial, and it belongs to the future, essentially. The primary and dominant meaning of the kingdom of God is a world empire to supersede present evil governments and to be established by the Messiah on the earth at his return in power and glory. That can be demonstrated from the second chapter of Daniel and the seventh chapter of Daniel. I'll quote only from the seventh chapter of Daniel at this point. In Daniel 7.27 we learn that the kingdoms under the whole heaven are going to come under the control of the saints and the Son of Man, who is Jesus. The kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdom of God. Revelation 11 verses 15 to 18 states, but that's only going to happen at the last trumpet, and the last trumpet marks, you know, the resurrection of the dead and the immortalizing of the saints. If you can drop from your scheme of thinking the idea that it's possible to go to heaven at death and bypass the resurrection, you'll unburden yourself from a great deal of misunderstanding of the Scripture. It's false to say that you can enter the presence of God apart from the resurrection, it's only by the rapture resurrection event in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we can actually come into the presence of Jesus. Think about that carefully. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, Thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's the way we come into the presence of the Lord personally. And it's by the resurrection, if you've died, or the rapture, the catching up to meet the Lord as he descends, if you happen to be still surviving at the second coming. But it's by that method, and by that method only, and only because of that event, the corporate resurrection of all the faithful, and the catching up of the surviving faithful, to meet Jesus as he's on his way to the earth, it's only by that event that you can come into the presence of the Lord. Unfortunately, some of our ecclesiastical traditions rather effectively contradict that simple scheme and they say, oh no, you can come into the presence of the Lord by being a disembodied soul, and it can happen the moment you die. 
That unfortunately disrupts the scheme. It moves tomorrow into today. It confuses the future with the present. The kingdom of God is primarily the events of the future connected with the second coming. The kingdom of God is the rule of Christ, the Messiah, with his saints, a coordinated rule in which the saints will assist Jesus in the management of world affairs in the kingdom of God to be established on the earth when Christ returns. Now one can quote isolated verses even from the Gospels. For instance, the favorite one is the kingdom of God is within you in Luke 17, verse 21. Unfortunately, that's almost certainly a mistranslation in the King James Version, which has been altered in all modern versions to read something like the kingdom of God is among you, or it may even mean the kingdom of God will be all of a sudden like lightning in your midst in the future. But let's suppose that Jesus there said the kingdom of God is among you. What he would have meant was that he, as the king, representing the kingdom, was standing right there with the Pharisees. Jesus did not, however, say that that's the only meaning for the kingdom of God. He constantly spoke of the kingdom of God as something to be inherited in the future at the same time as the wicked are thrown into the lake of fire, and that's only at the second coming of Jesus to establish his millennial rule on the earth with the Davidic kingdom restored and Jerusalem the capital of the new world. It will be at that time that the nations will beat their swords into plowshares. Why not read those grand passages again in Isaiah chapter 2? We have a scene there, descriptive of the kingdom of God in the future, at which there will be international disarmament. The nations, we read in Isaiah 2, will plead to go up to Jerusalem to learn how to manage their governmental affairs. And the result of sanity and sound government prevailing will be international disarmament. The nations will no longer learn the art of war. Do you realize that the Bible predicts with absolute certainty that the time is coming when the West Points and the Sandhurst, the training establishments for military personnel, will be curio museums. Nobody will sign up to become a soldier. Nobody will undertake to build a tank or a weapon of destruction. Now, is that true of our present world? Well, obviously not. And the United Nations, gallant as their efforts may be, has not succeeded in bringing the nations to international disarmament. That's because the spirit of chaos is still resident within the human race. Satan is still unfortunately deceiving the nations. You'll read a plain statement of that fact in Revelation 12 and verse 9. But the time is coming when the kingdoms of this world, the evil governmental systems that we now have in our world, will not be permitted to continue. At that point, we read in Revelation 19, there will be a resounding hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Revelation 19 and verse 6. It's at that point that the deceptive techniques of the devil, those techniques which now beguile and deceive people on a grand scale, will no longer be permitted to continue. We read in chapter 19 and verse 7 of Revelation that there's going to be a great rejoicing. Rejoice and be glad, the text says, and give glory to God, because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. I'm sure you're familiar with those many passages in the Gospels where Jesus looked forward to the marriage supper, the kingdom feast to be held on the occasion of his arrival back to this earth to rule in the kingdom. 
and it was given to the bride to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen, the text explains, represents the righteous deeds of the saints. And the saints, I explain in passing, means every true believer, any Christian in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, one who is growing in the grace and the knowledge of God, and proceeding in the journey of life towards the great climax of entrance into the kingdom when Jesus returns. And then in verse 9 of Revelation 19 we read, And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, those indeed who are invited into the kingdom of God to rule with Christ. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Those, in other words, who understand the gospel message as Jesus preached it. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, the mind of prophecy. In other words, the understanding of prophecy. That's what the spirit of Jesus is about. And I saw heaven open, John goes on, and behold, a white horse and here we're seeing the appearance of the Messiah as a warrior king, a white horse. He who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Yes, Jesus is a war-making Messiah at this point in his career. He has to destroy the anti-Christian forces before he can establish peace on the earth in his kingdom. And he's here waging war against the anti-Christian forces ranged against him, at the end of this age. We learn in verse 15 that this same Messiah is going to smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron, and he's going to tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And in verse 19 we have a glimpse of the beast and the kings of the earth. The beast is the final anti-Christian figure mentioned many times in the book of Daniel, particularly in the seventh chapter of Daniel, who will operate an anti-Christian regime for a limited period, three and a half years or so, and that beast is destined to arise somewhere in the Middle East, as other prophecies suggest. Well, he and the kings of the earth and their armies are assembled in verse 19 of Revelation 19 to make war against the Lamb, the one who sits upon a horse, and against his army. And then the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence that's the false religious leader who canvasses support for the beast, as someone has said, the PR man for the beast, the false prophet, who works wonders in the presence of the beast, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped the image of the beast. And these two, that's to say the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And there we see their destruction and the end of their evil regime. The rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And now comes the grand climax of this marvelous event, the second coming and the establishment of the kingdom of God. In Revelation 20, which reads straight on, and there should be no chapter break there, we see an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand, and he lays hold of the dragon that's the ancient Genesis serpent, equating the serpent of Genesis with the devil here, the ancient serpent of old, who is the devil, that's his Greek name, and the Satan, that's his Hebrew name, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, 
so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed, and after these things he must be released for a short time. And then John saw thrones and people sitting on them, and judgment was given to them. And then he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, the gospel, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And these came to life and began to reign with the Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now this event just described is called the first resurrection. And I have to tell you that resurrection means a real coming to life from real death. We're not talking here about the conversion of somebody. We're talking about people who had been beheaded and they came to life. That's real death. They died. They had their heads chopped off and they re-emerged from the sleep of death in order to reign with Christ in this future thousand-year reign of Christ and the saints. There really is no need for all the argumentation and discussion over this millennial kingdom. It's plainly an event following the second coming, initiated by the resurrection of martyred saints and other saints who come to life from death in order to reign with Christ in the kingdom. What John saw in his vision was not disembodied souls, persons who had gone to heaven without their bodies. He saw real people coming alive from death in order to reign with Jesus for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. We invite you to request from us our free book on the kingdom, a tape of the program you've been listening to, and remember to check these verses we've been presenting carefully in your own Bible at home, and join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.